Hello and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, in this episode, I will be taking a look at Dagon. So Dagon was written in 1917 and it was first published in 1919 in The Vagrant. So this is one of Lovecraft's earliest stories uh, he published, that he published and wrote as an adult. It comes after the, the Tomb, which I looked at in the last episode, and The Alchemist. Those were his first adult stories. Um, and then Dagon was, his, um, was the next one he wrote. Now, this story is often put in the, the kind of the Arkham uh, cycle stories, the mythos stories. Um, like so many of his greats, so many of the stories uh, that people go to. It is, in fact, the first story included in the, the first Leslie Klinger anthology, the new annotated H.P. Lovecraft, and that's the version I am working off of. And it's included in there because it does fit more with some of those other major mythos stories. As I talked about in the last episode, the second volume of the Klinger anthology includes the stories that, the horror stories that don't quite fit in that neatly into it. And it fits in because it has a lot of the themes that we see later in Lovecraft's story, like uh, uh, ancient cults, rising gods, um, you know, monsters from the sea, that kind of stuff. It's, it's very, very familiar, Lovecraftian uh, territory. So this story, um, you know, in the last couple episodes, I was talking a lot about knowledge and and memory and knowledge still remain a theme in this story, but it's not as present in fact this is a much more straightforward horse horror story about someone who experiences something and then has to come to terms with with that experience um but uh, i think but i think this doesn't mean that knowledge is completely gone because there's a hint at the end of the story that whatever he experienced however ancient it was however far back it goes into prehistory even to pre-human history you know the you know, the things he experiences, it, it, the strong evidence that it, it predates humanity. Um, but that that knowledge of that truth exists in human cultures and has remained a part of human cultures um, ever since uh, in, in various ways. So anyways, as the story opens, we're introduced. It actually starts a little bit like the tomb. Uh, in both stories, we have a character who's... Uh, experienced have had some event that led him to some sort of confinement uh, in this case it's it's enslavement to to opium um, in the case of the tomb it's actual an institutional confinement and both are going to die soon the hint in the hint in the tomb is that the the young man is going to die soon and be buried in the tomb here we're told pretty much in the first paragraph i think right in the first paragraph that he's going to jump out of the building because he has run out of his his opium or i guess it's morphine right he first calls it the supply of the drug which alone makes life endurable and later on it's identified as as morphine so i misspoke not not opium but morphine um so uh he he's careful though to admit he's not a degenerate like so many of the of the morphine users okay so after the first paragraph we get his story and basically he was a sailor in the in during world war one on a on an american ship that gets um captured by by germans during the war so this is not just a, written during world war one it's very much a world war one story and that's the setting 
that it's that it's placed in. I, I think this is just um, mostly a device for Lovecraft to get his character abandoned in the Pacific. It's actually suggested here that that you know this is before the Germans engage in kind of unrestricted submarine warfare, and instead of sinking the ship, in which case he would have died, they just capture him, and so he's captured on one of these. It's called a Sea Raider. Um, imagine some kind of U-boat. In the Pacific. Now, remember, of course, that uh, Germans did fight World War One in the Pacific to a certain degree. Um, both China and Japan joined the war on the side of the Allies. Uh, they had various goals. The Chinese wanted to reclaim territory that was taken by the Japanese or by the Germans in Shandong Province, and and you know to to kind of get more equality in in this age of empire. The Japanese wanted to acquire German colonies in the Pacific. The Germans had taken like present day New Guinea, many other Pacific islands. And in fact, that is what would happen after the war. Japan would gain much of its empire at the expense of these German colonies, including many islands throughout the, throughout the Pacific. So the Pacific was a theater. It's not as, of course, important as the Western Front or the, the war against Russia or those, those fronts of the war. But, you know, there was a conflict. It was a truly global war, and there was conflicts in the, in the Pacific as, as well. And so we get a little taste of it here, just in that this crew, this merchant ship gets captured, and our narrator is, is taken aboard. It's a fairly lax ship, so he, he's able to escape. And within the first page of the story, he finds himself um, adrift in the Pacific Ocean, having escaped his German captors. Now, the vast majority of this story, and, it, and it, again, it's not a very long one. It's only six, six or seven pages or so in this Klinger edition. Uh, it's very short. I think the audio version of it's not even 20 minutes. Um, but most of the story involves this narrator just kind of exploring what he finds in the Pacific um, sometime after he escapes his German captors. So again, this is just the German, the World War II setting is just an excuse to get her character where he is alone so he can go on this, this expedition. So he's adrift for a few days and then he kind of runs upon this place where there's all these dead fish and other creatures that he doesn't quite recognize. It described, this region was putrid with carcasses of decaying fish and other less desirable things which I saw protruding from the nasty mud of this unending plain. So actually what he runs into from the water is kind of first sludge, and then it kind of hardens, and he realizes he's on some kind of landmass, but it's recently ejected from the ocean. So what we're told, what he thinks happened, is that there was some kind of volcanic eruption in the Pacific that thrust up this landmass. And as it did so, it brought, you know, it brought up all this dead fish and dead, dead life. So, um, you know, and then he thinks, well, now there's some kind of land. Maybe I can go towards it and find some sort of salvation there. But first, he has to get through all this muck and crud of dead and decaying fishes. And I think one of the most striking things about this story is just how beautifully and how wonderfully Lovecraft describes this journey, you know, this real, this, the revealing of what he is, what his boat is entering into, what he sees around him, this, the, the imagery of the sky, the imagery of what he sees in front of us, front of him, and it's all really, really well done. And it, in fact, it makes up the bulk of of the tale. Now, what I want to say at this point is, 
you know, Lovecraft from early on was quite worldly. It's a point I made in my very first episode here. As much as he gets seen as kind of this more parochial New England writer, you know, his stories, and it didn't just start with The Call of Cthulhu. Some of his earliest stories as well had a had a much broader awareness of, of the world and existed on this global stage. Dagon's one of them. Even his little juvenilia piece, the the little glass bottle is set in in a broader uh, context. Uh, the alchemist is set in France. But as, as I said, as I, as I, I think I mentioned before, I, I think, you know, I was originally interested when I started reading Lovecraft stuff in, in just the imagery of the sailor, because I, I didn't remember so much about Lovecraft, you know, maybe three, four, five years ago when I started looking into him again. You know, I, I knew I kind of had an interest in going back into him. But I read his stuff when I was when I was young and, you know, I. But I knew on some level that there was something he was saying about about sailors, about maritime workers. And I remember, for instance, the the prominent play sailors played in the Call of Cthulhu. I didn't realize how much it is in so many of his other stories, how much the sea is relevant to him. You know, I, I kind of had this impression that Lovecraft had some kind of disgust with the sea. And that certainly comes true in this story, his, his dislike of seafood, you know, the kind of the tentacle porn aspect of, of Lovecraft's writing and the representation of, of Lovecraft's fiction. You know, when people, you know, like the, the board games always kind of make a big deal about the tentacle, uh, you know, the tentacles coming through the window or whatever. And some of the movies that were very shallow adaptations of his work do that same thing. But the sea is key to it. And, you know, obviously in, in Shadow over Innsmouth, you have that as well. So I, I knew I was, I'd be interested. I knew I wanted to go and look at the image of the sailor in Lovecraft's um, fiction. And of course, to my surprise, here, here I'm right, reading one of his first stories. And the sea, not so much a sailor so much. He was a supercargo or whatever. But he ends up just kind of riding a boat until he bumps into land. But the prominence of the sea in this this tale this and the the sea as being a place where um things can be hidden right i keep wanting to say evil but that's you can't use those kind of moralistic terms when talking about some of like these lovecraftian gods and these ancient societies it's that that have been hidden and 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 vanished and forgotten you know they're, they're kind of amoral if anything but anyways um Sailors, the worldliness of it, I think that is, uh, I think, a very important thing to remember about Lovecraft's work. And it, and it, and it does predate the Call of Cthulhu. Um, but anyways, he starts, our character starts digging into this muck, into this mud, into this crud, all these dead fish-like things. Um, and he finally gets to more solid land and he's able to begin to hike. And he sees like a, a hill up ahead that he can reach towards. A mountain and he thinks he can get there and maybe on the other side he might be able to find some kind of rescue or some kind of means of, of survival so he packs up what he can he packs up what food he has and he starts to explore so it takes him about four days to get to this this mound that he was seeking out it took him longer than he thought it would and he's exhausted he he crashes at the at the side of this mound and he starts to have wild, what are described as wild dreams. Um, again, uh, this is something that will come up in 
Lovecraft's later stories, the, the importance of dreams. Obviously, he wrote the Dreamland Tales. He wrote uh, in the Call of Cthulhu, dreams, the, the arrival of dreams around the world corresponds with the emergence, the, the, the awakening of Cthulhu. Right. But he has these dreams and they keep him from sleeping very well. These wild dreams. So he wakes up and he realizes he can actually make a little bit more ground at night when it's a little bit cooler. And so he travels by this gibbous moon. Right? The word gibbous moon is used several times in this, this, this story. So he thinks he'll just have a little, he'll be able to make it a little bit more easier, easier in the dark. So he packs up his stuff again and begins uh, marching up this mound towards the, towards the peak. He eventually gets to the top and he's able to look down into some, what he calls, an, what's described here as an unmeasurable pit or canyon whose black recesses the moon has not yet soared high enough to illuminate. I felt myself at the end of the world peering over the rim into the fathomless chasm of eternal night. Through my terror ran curious reminiscence of paradise lost and of Satan's hideous climb through the unfashioned realms of, of darkness. End quote. So a nice shout out there to, to um, paradise lost and uh, Satan's descent into, into hell. And then our character uh, decides to go. Um, Curiosity is in quite a few of these tales we've already looked at. We this is only what the f the fourth episode of this, and we have it in the Beast in the Cave. We have it in the Alchemist. Uh, to a certain degree, we have it in the Tomb. Um, although there there he's being sort of more driven by some kind of spirit possession almost. But here we also have curiosity, and so that's uh, another major Lovecraftian trope. It's just the danger of knowledge, the danger of digging too deeply, the danger of of, of to keep going. Right? I, I think he's very much um, fearful of knowledge, and I think that's something I've talked about already a, a little bit, but it'll come up a lot here. Um, so he goes. Uh, now, the setting, it, it seems at times to be almost artificial, right? Uh, he writes at one point, uh, ledges and outcroppings of rock afforded fairly easy footholds for the descent, while whilst after a drop of a few hundred feet, the declivity became gradual. And I don't know, you could read into that maybe that these are somewhat artificial um, stepping stones or something that have been kind of worn down over over the centuries. Um, because eventually he is going to see, if not man-made, just artificial constructions and and. And elements. In fact, that's what we're told in the very, very next paragraph is that he sees a monolith. He sees a monolith as he heads down this gradual slope. Quote, I perceived beyond a doubt that the strange shape was a well, strange object was a well-shaped monolith whose massive bulk had known the workmanship and perhaps the worship of living and thinking creatures. Then this realization of, of something made by intelligence uh, is immediately followed up by that curiosity again, that, that damn curiosity. Quote, dazed and frightened, and yet without a certain thrill of the scientists or archaeologist's delight, I examined my surroundings more closely. And at this point, the moon starts to light everything around him, so he starts to see more clearly what is around him. And what he sees um, near this monolith are all these drawings, all this writing on the walls, hier hieroglyphs. Hieroglyphs, um, which have which are based on different aquatic symbols, uh, fishes, eels, octopus, crustaceans, mollusk, whales, and the like, and marine things which are unknown to the modern world. But he adds these these are representations of what he saw dead in the water 
earlier. So these are not creatures that are extinct. They're not like uh, dinosaur fish or something that, that some people were able to record over the vast eons of time. These are creatures that are still with us, still alive. Right? Then he starts to see, in addition to the hieroglyphs, he starts he sees these drawings, and one drawing is of this of a of a fish creature, a fish man, uh, stabbing a whale, hunting a whale, and he's struck by how this is the, the the fish creature is about the same size as the whale. So these whoever made this stuff made the monolith, made the etchings. If they were accurately represented in this picture, they must have been massive creatures. Right, so this is what fears he's afraid of. But then he says, "No, no, no. Maybe this is just the the god of whoever created these this imagery." And he thinks that maybe this is just some prehistoric, in fact, pre-Homo sapien uh, fishing cult or fishing society that that used to exist here, right, uh, before the first ancestor of the Piltdown or Neanderthal man. Now, I am going to have to begin to talk about Lovecraft's understanding of, of anthropology, physical anthropology, uh, when we get to his letters. Uh, there are hints of it here. Uh, of course, in his stories, he's, of course, well aware of how old the Earth is and of, of he has some understanding of the origin of humanity. Now, at the time that Lovecraft wrote, we didn't have quite the same understanding about human origins. There were different theories. And we, we didn't, for instance, have all the the full mapping out of the different hominid species, where they dwelled and where they existed. But when we get to his letters, we can start to, 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 to look at this because this is things he talked about with his friends and pen pals. He talked quite a lot about anthropology, ancient history, ancient migrations and things like that. So he is certainly aware as educated people at the time, scientists at the time were aware that, that they were discovering prehistoric um, hominid fossils, right? This is around the time that the Peking man uh, skulls are discovered in, in China. Okay, so let's let's dance over to, to Wikipedia for a little bit. Um, now this predates the story a little bit. Uh, I'll have to, maybe we'll find the exact origin of these ideas, yeah. Um, I was thinking about when I, when I read this was the Central Asiatic Expeditions. These were... Uh, led by, or maybe not led, but a major participant in it was Roy Chapman Andrews. I, I think the Central Asiatic expeditions were sent out by the, by the New York or the, the American Museum of, of Natural History. Uh, but I might be wrong about that. But their goal, and th this was set out from 1822 to 1828. So this is a, several expeditions that went to like China, Mongolia, Central Asia, and their goal was to look for the earliest human ancestors. And they didn't find any there, but what they found was, were a lot of dinosaur bones. And they found, uh, 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 what's the, what's the dinosaur they found there? Oh, it's Avaraptor. They found the Avaraptor, um, like dinosaur eggs there, and they found other, um, protoceratops uh, fossils and things like that. So it was a successful expedition for paleontology, but a failure in paleoanthropology. 
Um, but uh, around that time, I think a little bit earlier than that, you have the discovery of the Peking Man fossils. And the Peking Man were, were Homo erectus. And as we now basically understand, Homo erectus left Africa, spread around much of the world. And then later on, Homo sapiens evolved in Africa and spread out. That's kind of the modern explanation, right? Two migrations out of Africa over the course of, you know, a couple million years. But, you know, this is before Lovecraft's time. So Lovecraft would have been most influenced by what he was reading. And most anthropologists accepted the Central Asian hypothesis, right? And I think this might tie maybe even to the Indo-European language hypothesis, right? Where you have one language that's one language family in India and Europe, and it seems to have the common root, you know, and so looking in Central Asia maybe is not that far, 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 um, you know, not that hard to believe at the time. So this is, if you, if you look up the out of Asia theory on Wikipedia, you get this. Because of the rise in evolutionary thought in the late 19th century, the out of Asia theory gained many new proponents, many of whom believed that the missing link would be found in Asia. Scientists such as Ernst Haeckel, Eugene Dubois, Henry Fairfield Osborne, and Roy Chapman Andrews. And those last two are associated, I believe, with the American history of the, the American Museum of Natural History. Okay. All thought Asia was where the major events of evolution occurred. So this is, even though the Central Asiatic expeditions were in the 1920s, you know, prior to that, that was where people looked. Um, and a lot of it had to do with the discovery of the of the Peking Man fossil, the Java Man in, in 1891 was discovered. So looking in Asia was where they looked. And, and the fact that the Java Man fossil in 1891, maybe someone like Lovecraft can look at that and say, ah, maybe there are these different hominids out there. Now, of course, the creatures here, they're not really hominids. I mean, they're much more ancient. They're massive. They're fish-like. They're aquatic. So, but nevertheless, I, I think... This idea that there are these pre-human civilizations out there, and we don't know much about them except they have these strange remnants, I think is something very fascinating for him and is certainly influencing some of his thoughts as he tried to dig up and try to find these, these you know, kind of ancient ancient cults, ancient ideas, and ancient traditions, right? And I think what's really striking in this story is how Lovecraft thinks that whatever that was, whatever this creature that he eventually sees, I haven't gotten to that in the story yet, but whatever that creature is he saw, it has, someone knew, it was known enough that it remained in human memory somehow. I mean, other people saw it or other people experienced it in ancient or prehistoric societies and it became deified. Okay, back to the story. Now, right after he sees this creature, this picture of this of this humanoid fish creature stabbing the whale, he looks up and he sees it. And this is the description. It's only a short paragraph. If you blink, you miss it. Then suddenly I saw it. With only a slight churning to mark its rise to the surface, the thing slid into view above the dark waters. Vast, polymephus-like and loathsome, it darted like a stupendous monster of nightmares to the monolith about which it flung its gigantic scaly arms and whilst it bowed its hideous head and gave vent to certain measured sounds i think i went mad then and quote that's all we get we don't get a description of it except what's hinted at in the picture so i think the standard interpretation of this is that this is the 
this is some kind of remnant of that ancient civilization that created this monolith, created those, those hieroglyphs, worshipped that monolith, or whatever. Or maybe it's what that civilization was worshipping. I think those are the two readings. I don't know which two to take. In any case, the point is there was some ancient civilization that was doing some worshipping um, way back before humanity ever existed. And it's not revealed until this earthquake or volcano or something pushed this landmass back up into, into view. Well, at this point, our narrator awakens. He finds himself in San Francisco. So he's really slept. I mean, that seeing that thing really knocked him out for quite a while because he slept through his salvation and he slept through the whole voyage back to San Francisco. Um, he begins to tell a story. Um, well, he actually started telling his story on the boat, but it was all in a delirium, so he didn't have any recollection of it. But he apparently knew he said some things, um, but the rescuers didn't know. Now, the rescuers obviously went to this island, and, and I don't know if they saw these hieroglyphs or just saw the body and, and picked them up, but it's all pretty vague what happened there, but that's fine. Um, kind of the story works best if he's the the lone witness of this of this event now here's where i think the story really becomes um, really really relevant for kind of being a thread through a lot of lovecraft's later work and is that that's when uh our narrator says once i sought out a celebrated ethnologist it amused him with the peculiar questions regarding the ancient philistine legend of dagon the fish god but soon perceiving that he was hopelessly conventional i did not press my inquiries so besides the kind of uh, backhanded slap at academics for being a little bit narrow-minded and, and conventional, the, the core idea here that we're given is that this fish god is rooted in some actual living memory of what he witnessed or that civilization or those people, whether it itself is the fish god that was being worshipped or whether a member of that society that was worshiping the sea and worshiping fish gods. Uh, it lived on in the Philistine legend of Dagon. So this obviously Lovecraft doesn't make up. There actually was a Near Eastern um, god, a fish god. I'm sure in the Pacific you had a bunch of fish gods too. Um, so we're back to some kind of vernacular networks of knowledge carrying on some kind of tradition um, in in human cultures. And I think that's, that's really, I think one of Lovecraft's really interesting contributions was to, to see the kind of endurance of, of ideas, of concepts, of fears within, within human cultures, you know, often maintained when everyone else sort of forgets, forgets those truths. They, they just, they, they're able to be maintained in vernacular, traditions and vernacular patterns. So the story ends uh, with, a pair, with a couple of paragraphs where we're just re refreshed. We're told again that he's going to kill himself after recording this memoir. He still has the fear of what he saw. Quote, I cannot think of the deep sea without shuddering at the nameless things that may at this very moment be crawling and floundering on its slimy bed, worshiping the ancient stone idols and carving their own detestable likeness 
on submarine obelisks of water-soaked granite. I dream of the day when they may rise above the billows to drag down in the reeking talons the remnants of puny water exhaust, war-exhausted mankind of a day when the land shall sink and the dark ocean floor shall send amidst universal pandemonium. A few interesting things here. One is this idea of humanity in decline. That's another Lovecraftian um, concept. And he believed this sort of in a, in a cultural way. He actually kind of bought into some of the decline of the West arguments that were floating around at the time. And he adds here war exhausted. So he's this he's obviously still thinking about the, the trauma of World War One, an event that had a very, very profound influence on on our author. Now, the ending, a lot of people maybe kind of dig this ending or find it preposterous. You know, this kind of as he's writing, he sees this hand coming to the window almost as if this fish god creature followed him all the way from the pacific to san francisco to kind of put an end to him you know he's he's probably just going crazy from lack of morphine and his fear and terror and his past experiences so that's really what happened this you know as he's dying right in his last words i you know that's not what i think is really happening here just uh you know, a total fear of anything on the in the in the outside. I guess he's in San Francisco. The last last we last location we're given specifically is San Francisco. Uh, maybe he's back to Arkham or something. But you'd think he would go to like Kansas or someplace so far from the water if you wanted to uh, get away from his experiences. So, anyways, um, yeah. I don't know. It's like this story is really, really great. I, I think it's so memorable. The description, especially that long hike uh, uh, and, and as the boat. Well, first, as the boat comes to this, you know, this island that's just been raised through the muck and the dead fish. And then as you get to the land and he starts to march, I think. And then the realization of there's some kind of artificial civilization that was once here. That's so well done. That's really, really great. Uh um, really, really fun to read. Um, but as for interpretation, you know, not too much on really nothing here on race. But we have a lot about the context of World War One. We got the, the the fear of the maritime, the fear of the sea, the fear of 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 ancient cultures, ancient civilizations that are still there to some degree. Uh, the curiosity, the drive, the danger of the drive, the curiosity drive. Um, and a little bit here with the, the potential that Dagon is tied to this, what he witnesses, or at least other fish god type of traditions, is tied to what he witnessed. This idea that human memory is long. And, and I think there's a kind of interesting contradiction here in Lovecraft's mind. Like, on the one hand human memory is capable of remembering or human societies are capable of remembering things even if it's very subtle ways or very vernacular ways or even at the very grassroots of society right but he still you know is of the opinion that you want to burn those books you want to lock the necronomicon in the library right on you know make sure no one can see it don't translate it whatever you know keep this knowledge hidden um a theme we're going to come back to a lot when we read the case of Charles Dexter Ward. But anyways, that's what I want to say about Dagon. 
Let me know what you think about this story. If you have any of your own thoughts, um, leave them below. And you can leave a, leave a comment or send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. Next time, uh, what's next? Reminiscence of Dr. Samuel Johnson. So this is a short little vignette. It's not a horror story. It's, um, it's kind of about, it, it tells us a little bit about Lovecraft's view of, of 18th century England. That was his, that was his, that was his time. That was the time he wished he would have been born in. That was the time he idealized most. So yeah, I guess I got to do a little bit of research on Dr. Samuel Johnson and, and, and take a stab at this. I've read this once before. Didn't think too much of it, but I'm going to have to try to take a more serious look at it. So, but anyways, that's what's next. Um, I will talk to you soon. Thanks for listening.